Good morning, Boker Tov, and welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. So good to be together yet again to study the Parsha and to extract from it the lessons that can inspire our contemporary lives. The Parsha, the Torah, the Chumash, was not written or given to us four years ago in antiquity, but it is an instruction manual. It is a blueprint for how to live today as well. I want to thank our generous sponsors, my dear friends, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in loving memory of Becky's father, who's your titus this week, David Grossman, David ben, uh, David ben Menachem Munish. Thank you so much for your generosity, and thank you for that sponsorship. I want to acknowledge and thank those who have contributed and given to our campaign, the brsonline.org global campaign. Those who listen, who learn, who benefit, who read, I will not be sharing about it in the middle of the Parsha class today. Today we will discuss strictly Parsha, but I do want to thank those who contributed to the campaign and brought us to 70% of our goal. You can help us get across the finish line uh, if you go to brsonline.org slash global, brsonline.org slash global. Thank you so much for your generosity. Also, if you're listening on YouTube, take a moment and subscribe. If you take a moment to subscribe, you'll be notified every time we go live with new shiurim classes and learning opportunities. This morning, we have the privilege of studying together Parshas Truma, page 444 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Parshas Truma. And Parshas Truma, Parshas Truma is the big transition from the narrative of the story of the Jewish people leaving Egypt the story of arriving at Har Sinai and the experience of receiving the Torah, the most seminal event in all of human history. Mishpatim, the Vav we spoke about last week, the Vav HaChibor, Ve'ela Mishpatim, that connection of bringing it to, of bringing it uh, to this world and into the world of action, civil, tort, criminal law, how to bring Hashem Dira Betachtonim to giving a dwelling place down here and to connect with Him down here in this world. And then we transition from that to Truma. The Ramban we mentioned in his introduction to the Book of Shemos talked about it being the transition from Golas to Geula. We are going from exile, and exile is a place where one is far from God, unsure about God. Exile is a place where you are not as confidential that there is a God in this world and that you connect to Him. That is exile. Geula is living with God. It's feeling His presence, His love, His influence, and therefore we have now begun the second half of the book and the transition from the story of Gullus, of living without God, of thinking we're in charge and we're in control, to the story of Geula, of building Hashem a home, of building a place where He can have a dira betachtonim, where he can dwell down here on down here on earth. Now the Pasik says, Moshe says, God says to Moshe, speak to the Jewish people and take for me a gift, from anyone who has a generous heart, a generous spirit. Take that gift. And so on and so forth. And wonders of Druk. We're going to jump right into our first Eshtamid, the first of Yisrael Meir Druk. We've been learning the Sefer and the Parsha among many other thoughts each week. Rav Druk wonders about the order of this command. I wondered this myself this year when being Mar Besedra, when looking at the Parsha. It's backwards. Who runs a campaign this way? Who does a appeal this way? Normally, you speak about what it is you're trying to raise money for. Normally, you talk about the cause, the institution, the organization, the values, the vision. Here's who we are, what we represent. We need your help. We need your partnership. Please give. And yet here in the Parsha, it works exactly the opposite. Here the Torah is saying, please give. Oh, you want to know the cause? Oh, by the way, you want to know what we're raising money for? 
So shouldn't we first state, first we shouldn't, shouldn't we first articulate what it is that money is being raised for, and only afterwards do the appeal. Who's in? Who's giving? Go on the website, go on the campaign site, and do it on our own memory. What kind of a campaign is this? What's going on over here? Wonders, Rav Druk. So he says you can explain the following. We find similarly when it comes to Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, what does Avram Avinu have to do with the Mishkan? Have to do with our storyline here. Says Rav Druk, God, when he introduces himself, or at least the way we see or read God's introduction to Avram, God tells Avram, leave your homeland. Leave your home. Leave everything you know and go to the land that I am going to, that I am going to show you. Now, when he first reaches out, he doesn't tell him where. He doesn't tell him where he's going to. He just says, leave your home, leave everything you know, and I want you to go to the place that I'm going to show you. What do you mean the place I'm going to show you? I think we spoke about it this year again. We speak about it every year. Why didn't God give him the coordinates? Avram had to plug into Waze or into Google Maps or whichever... I don't know which uh, app he used. But whichever one, he had to plug in the coordinates of where to go. So he knows to leave his homeland. He knows the departure gate, but he doesn't know the destination. Why does God hold back or conceal from him where is the destination? Why not give it up front? And Chazal tells you, Because God wanted to give Avram a reward on every step and every step. That rather than know where he was going and how wonderful it would be there, all he knew was, you're on this ride. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, I'm the pilot, I'm the driver, you're the passenger. I will get you to the destination you belong, to the destination you need to be, come along for this ride. And that's our test, that's the challenge. Are we willing to let go and let God, are we willing to go along for the ride? Was Avram willing to drop and leave everything he knew for a lech lecha to start out on a journey even without knowing the destination of that journey? If he knew he was going, then the whole journey, the journey wasn't a means unto itself and ends unto itself. The journey was just the means in order to arrive at the destination. But God wanted Avram to go through the journey of self-discovery. He wanted to go on this path of figuring out who he was, that every step and every progress and every advance would in itself be transformational to him and with the source of great reward. That's why Hashem concealed from Avram. That's why God did not reveal the destination to begin with. That's why he didn't tell him about it up front. So says Rav Druk, now we can understand similarly in our Parsha. Why does God first announce there's an appeal? Open your wallet, bring your checkbook, Venmo, Zelle, however you want to wire the money. Show me the money, bring the money. Oh, what's the cause? I'll tell you in a moment. And we ask, what kind of an appeal is this? First you explain the cause, and then you ask for the money. Says Rav Druk, no. Had Hashem explained the cause before the money, then people would have been giving because they believed in the cause. But Hashem wanted to confirm that people were willing to give because He asked them to give. He said, I'm Hashem. You love me, you're devoted, you're dedicated. When I say, write a check, you say, how high? And then, Then, giving would have been just a means towards the result of having the Mishkan. But the giving itself wouldn't have been as impactful, 
wouldn't have been as transformational, just like the journey of Avram. So God says, give. And through that giving, you will be changed. And now, what are you giving towards? We could talk about afterwards. But just the experience of giving is impactful, is transformational. In fact, the Rambam, Rav Juk doesn't quote this, but the Rambam writes, if a person has $100 to give, and they can give $1 a hundred times or $100 to one person, what should they do? If I came to you and asked you that advice, what would you advise? $1 to 100 people or $100 to one person? What would you advise? So I might have advised the $100 to one person. It's a much more efficient, first of all, way of giving. But second of all, it's a much more impactful way of giving. The $100 could make a real difference in someone's life. The $1 to 100 people won't. Writes the Rambam, $1 to 100 people. Why? Because each time you give, you've changed yourself. The whole notion of giving, we're not going to spend time on now. We've spent time on in the Yom and Narayim. When we talk about the three things, Tshuva, Tfilo, Tztakam, Avir, Hagzera, and we asked, I understand repentance. I change who I am. I'm deserving of a new decree. I understand prayer. Prayer, I change who I am and how I position and talk to Hashem. I'm deserving of a new decree. But Tztaka, what do I just write a check to the judge? When I write a check to the judge, I'm basically buying off and bribing the judge. And through that, I get a new decree. How does Tztaka work? But if you understand that when I take my assets, my resources, when I take it and I give it to the right place, I use it and spend it in the right way, then I am transforming myself. It's not an external act, it's an act which transforms who I am. It's an act which affirms my relationship with money, my relationship with things, my relationship with my material possessions and my assets. And when I give them away, each act of giving transforms who I am. So says the Rambam, $100 to one person is one act of giving. There's one unit of impact. But $1 to 100 people, even though the $1 is much less, but there's 100 acts of giving, there's 100 moments of the impact of transformation. So says Rav Druk, that's what God was saying. V'yikhu li truma, li lishmi, li lishmi, Rashi says. God says, lishmi, do it for me. Do it because I asked you. Uh, what's it going for? What's it towards? I'll tell you later. First, I want to know that you're giving for me. If you ever had a close friend or family members and you're raising money for something important, you call them and you say, I've got a cause, I'm working on something that's really important, I want to know, are you willing to help me out? So if they say, does it matter to you? Do you care about it? Is it important? I'm in. Now tell me what it is I'm giving to. To whom do I write the check? Where do I address the wire? But if they say, well, first tell me about it and I'll see if it speaks to me. So then it's not Lashmi. Then it's not about the person's devotion to you. They're only giving if it's a cause that speaks to them. So Kodesh Baruch Hu says, V'yichu li truma, li lishmi. I want to know you're giving because you are connected to me. I want to know this is an act of devotion to me. I want to know this is a transformational change to you that you're willing to part with your things for me because I asked. What's the cause? I'll tell you in a moment. And that's why the order seems out of order. First it's V'yichu li truma and then V'asu li mikdash. It's a perfect example, by the way, at least for me, maybe you've noticed this and know this Dvar Torah, it's obvious to you. I've read the Parsha many times. I never noticed it until this year. I was bothered by this question and I'm so happy and relieved to see that he offers this, this answer. First it's all about Hashem li and only afterwards then does Hashem tell us the, the cause and the reason for it. He has a long essay. He develops further ideas here, but we're going to move on. If you have the Sefer, I encourage you to read further and to understand uh, more about why it is in this in this order. Okay, Perik Chafei Pasuk Gimel. So, Take Trum Meis Kashi Ven Libo from anyone who is generous of heart. And here's the gift I want you to solicit. Here is the appeal. You ready? There's no website, brsonline.org slash global. 
but rather the material things you have to dedicate, you have to give. I said I wouldn't interrupt the parsha, but that's part of the theme of the parsha, so that's not called an interruption. Here are the materials. Here's what was being solicited from the people: zahav, vachasef, unachoshes, gold, silver, and bronze. These are materials. They needed these materials in order to successfully build the mishkan and the kalim in the mishkan, and in order to be able to make it happen. Why now? Why now? So I want to first, I'm going to share with you an insight from Rabbi Salavechik, but before I want to repeat something I've told you before. It comes from the Chamra Tava. Chamra Tava is a sefer of Rav Misimcha Barnav, a great tzaddik schusa yogin aleinu. And he writes the following. The Medrash says in Tanad Be'eliyo, Kishom Yisrael, Nase v'nishma, miyad omr Hashem Yisbarach, v'yikhuli truma. When the Jewish people, at the end of last week's parasha, Mishpatim, Last week, we didn't get into it in the Parsha class last week, but the end of last week's Parsha, after we went through the long list and litany of laws, then returns to a narrative. And that narrative, the words, Nasev and Ishma, we will do, and then we will listen, doesn't appear in Parsha's Yisro, where the giving of the Torah, but appears at the end of Mishpatim. And there's a debate, again, we didn't get into it, the end of last week's parsha, chronologically, did that really come before Matan Torah, after Matan Torah? If it really came before, why was it placed after? Maybe an extra Mishpatim will deal with it. So the words Nasa and Nishma are the end of Parsha's Mishpatim. God says, I have an offer. And the Jewish people say, we're in. We'll do. We'll accept. We're ready. Oh, by the way, what is it you want us to do? These are the iconic words, Nasa Vinishma. And then you go from that high of Nasa Vinishma last week to V'yikhuli Truma in this week, where God says, okay, you're in. Open your wallet. Open your checkbook. So it says the Heiliger of Avram Simcha of Barnav, he says, you know, we have a lot of Jews who, they go to the Dafyomi and they listen to the Parsha Shir, the Living with the Munashir, the the Afternoon Kolel, they even listen to Behind the Bima. I don't know that you have to say Birchas HaTorah and Behind the Bima, but there's a lot of people who love learning and they dive in with a minion and they're outside. Some of you, if you're not in Boca, some of you have been bundling up to go outside in freezing temperatures with enormous mysterious nefesh, tremendous sacrifice to continue to dive in and to dive in with a minion. And there are people who are willing to give up their, their comfort to dive in with a minion. There are people who are willing to give up their time in order to participate in Torah learning. And then you say to them, by the way, we're doing an appeal and all of a sudden they shut down the recoil, they distance themselves, and they disappear. Monim atma mitztaka, mamonim chaviv Time, they'll give you. Their comfort, convenience, they'll give you. But the money, ooh, the money, there's an allergy. The money, they'd rather give you their liver and their kidneys than they would rather give you than their money. Im so says, Ravavim Simcha Barnav, When they said Nasav Anishma, Hashem said, Oh yeah, you're in? Oh yeah, you love me? Oh yeah, you're ready to do whatever I ask? Okay, cough it over. Write a check. Venmo some money. Because this is the core test. The Gemara in Erev and tells us there are three ways that a person, you want to know the essence of someone? Don't follow their lip service. Don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. If you want to understand somebody, don't just listen to what they say, but watch what they do. And we know kiso, kaso, and koso. When a person gets angry, first of all, what do they get outraged and angry over? And what do they act like when they get angry? You learn everything about somebody. Bikoso, somebody drinks, becomes inebriated, intoxicated. What comes out? You learn a lot about somebody. But says the Gemara, the third one is bikiso, the wallet. You want to know about somebody? Check the credit card statement. I wrote an article last week. Imagine somebody found your credit card statement. You lost it. The mail blew away. Someone stole your mail. Imagine someone went through your credit card statement. What would they conclude about you? 
If they followed what you spend money on, what would they conclude about your priorities? So the notion of giving stuck is, it's mitzvah sabore. Hashem says give, and we say, how much? We say, how much? So such, I thought, a fascinating insight where he says, why is Nasa Vinishma followed from Vyikuli Truma? It's sort of anticlimactic. We go from this romantic Nasa Vinishma, love and romance and spirituality, and then God says, okay, how much are you willing to give? Because we measure the love not by the words, but by the action. If you really appreciate, if you're really committed, if you've benefited and you're really grateful, it's nice when you get beautiful emails, but it's about making the contribution to be able to show that appreciation and continue that project and that effort. Rebbe also has a comment here on these words, and says the Rav the following. He says, you have to understand and remember who are these people and where are they coming from? When God turns to them and says, cough it over, contribute, share, we're doing an appeal. Who are these people? What's their mentality? What has been their life experience until now? Where are they coming from? So writes the Rav, the slaves in Egypt had no property rights. Slaves are not compensated. By definition, if you're a slave, you're not paid, you're not compensated. There's no 401k, no pension contribution, there's no mileage reimbursement. When you're a slave, forget the actual money, health insurance, garnished, you get nothing. The Jewish people would pass an Egyptian woman to see her beautiful clothing, while the Israelites had, all they had were rags. So they'd see the beautiful clothing and the wonderful spread of food and the home and the luxury car and the nice watch and the Jewish people as slaves to the Egyptians had garnished, had nothing. Suddenly, they were liberated and given so many gifts. All of a sudden, the Jewish people on the way out, we know the, the, um, the, um, knew the booty, the, the spoils of the war that wash up on the shore after the Yamsuf, we know they collected it and they got great wealth. Moshe ran to get the bones of Yosef, but they ran to collect all the wealth that was on the chariots of these Egyptians that washed up on the shore. See, here you have a nation who for 210 years lived in poverty. 210 years had nothing, and now they discover wealth. They've won the lottery. Now they have beautiful clothing and gold and silver. They have great wealth. When one undergoes privation, it is natural to want to be compensated for the years of poverty and destitution when the period of privation ends. So when a person goes from being a slave to a free person, they want compensation. They want to collect. We all know the debate between Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin when the Germans and uh, paying the, um, what was it called? Retribution, not uh, paying uh, restitution to the Jews, to the people in Israel. There was a big debate in the Knesset. Do you take the restitution or do you assume that it's, uh, are you letting the Germans off the hook if you, if you accept it? So a person goes free and they want to be compensated by their former, by their former master, by their persecutor. Uh, but when the, then Hashem makes an announcement and he says, okay, you've discovered gold and silver. You're now wealthy. You've won the lottery. You're landed on money. The people's willingness to give up these hard-earned possessions that they receive from the Egyptians is precisely what hallowed and sanctified the sanctuary. Such a beautiful insight. It means that what gave the Kedusha to the Mikdash, what gave the holiness to the Mishkan, were the contributions of the people who made it up. And why were those contributions so holy? Because they didn't come easy. And it's not just that they didn't come easy financially. You know, every time one does an appeal, every time, this is not my timing. We didn't sit down and time brsonline.org slash global campaign with Parshish Truma. just happens to work out perfectly, though I'm not bringing it up in the middle of the Parshish year. But when one runs a campaign, there are people for whom writing that check means little. It won't impact their lives. And there are others who go to their savings. 
There are others who consider what could we live without this year in order to make sure, sure the shul or the yeshiva or the kolel or the mikvah or the erev or the kashras has, or our brothers and sisters in Israel, in order to make sure that the soldiers in the Israeli army, what am I willing to live without in order that they have? So financially, the holiness of the tzedakah we give is proportional to how much it hurt to give it. But the hurt to give it is not only true in terms of our bank account. The hurt to give it is not only true in terms of the number that it goes down because we've given and shared. The hurt to give is also the mentality. There are people who are magnanimous. They are naturally generous. They are eager to share and and be generous with others. And there are others who are allergic to giving away. There are others that it's painful. It's like you're extracting a limb or an organ to take money. And these slaves were exactly that people. They had come out of Egypt, they had nothing, and they were afraid of the future. What would it bring? Think about the last generation, the survivors. The survivors who walked out of the camps as skeletons, and they had nothing. And they worked tirelessly just to be able to have a roof over their head and food in their mouth. And then it was time to rebuild in America. And they came and said, we need money for the shul, for the yeshiva. We need money for the era, for the mikvah. And these survivors who didn't know where their next meal would come from nevertheless took the little they had in order to build the Jewish future. That was the same thing as these slaves. That's the slaves. That's the holiness. The institutions that we have today, we have to remember where they're from. And the holiness that went into building them was the sacrifice on the backs of the people of what they gave up for us to have and to live with what we have. During Corona in the past 12 months, we lost two of the founding members of BRS. Two founding members, Izzy Brook and Tamar Nawi. And, you know, our shul, our community, it's flourishing, it's thriving, Baruch Hashem, but not everybody knows the story of the founders and what they gave up to be 10 people who came together to daven in a living room and start from there. So here too, Zahav v'chesev Hashem asks it not of a wealthy, settled, comfortable people. He asks of a people in transit, a people who are on the run, a people who have not yet discovered comfort, a people who a moment ago were slaves for 210 years, he says, nevertheless, please give Zahav HaChesed V'Nechoshev. They do so readily and generously, and that is the holiness upon which our Mikdash and Mishkan were built. Continuing right along, Pasuk Perach Pasuk Zayin, still on page 444. Among the materials that Moshe recruits, that Moshe asks for are, Avnei Shoham v'avnei miluim la'ifod v'lachoshan. Shoham stones and stones for the miluim, setting stones, stones that you're going to set in the breastplate, leifod v'lachoshen, for the ephod and the choshen for the breastplate. So I want to look at two pieces by Rav Druk on these words, on the notion of the avnei sham and avnei miluim. Says Rav Druk the following, If you looked at all the materials and you had to assign a value, if you were going to list them in the order of what they were worth, then avnei sham, avnei miluim should have come first. Before Zahav HaChesed V'Nechoshes, before the Acacia word, would Atzei Shittim, why are Avnei Shom and Avnei Miluim at the end, when arguably they are of the greatest value, and they should have been listed at first? This is the question, Azai Frecht, of Yisrael Meir Juk, this is the question of the Ishtamen. And he quotes the Orachayim HaKadosh, who says the following. The Orachayim says, quote, these are of greater value, these are more precious. You know why they're at the end? Even though objectively they are of more value, you know why they're placed here at the end? Who gave them? Who gave them? 
We know the Medrash tells us the Nassim, the princes, the leadership, waited to see what everyone else would give. There's a campaign, and there's you need a certain number to reach that campaign. So they were waiting. Let's see what everyone else gives first, and then we'll fill in the gap. Those are heroes of campaigns, by the way. A lot of these online matching campaigns right now, you see they have one minute left of the campaign and suddenly they fill in the last million and a half dollars. Where'd that come from? They had someone they knew they set aside. We may need you to bail us out to hit that magic number at the end. But is that right? Is that righteous? Should you be the hero who says, I'm going to come in at the end and help you meet the goal? Or with alacrity and zeal, should you be out front? I'm going to be one of the first ones. You ask to give, I'm going to run to give and not wait to see what's missing, but I want to be among those. So the Nassim waited, and what looked like a very noble gesture to say, we will fill in what's missing, we'll fill in the deficit. In fact, Hashem holds them accountable. You're waiting. You're only going to give based on the deficit of what's there. You should have run to give. You should have been out front. You should have been the first. And because of that, Hashem spells the name Chaser. The word Nassim appears without a Yud. Nin, Nun, Samech, Aleph, Yud, Mem. It's missing one of the Yuds. Why? Because they're essentially being punished. This is Hashem's patch. They're missing a yud because they were missing the alacrity of running to give at first. They delayed, they procrastinated, they waited to only give the deficit. Therefore, what they ultimately gave were these stones. The stones are listed last, correlated with the fact that Nassim gave last. And wonders of Druk, I, I don't understand. Isn't this a great thing that Nassim did? I would love it if someone stepped up right now and said, the global campaign stated a goal of 100,000. They're at 70,000. I don't know what people are giving right now during this year. I'm not looking because we're learning the parish together. But if somebody stepped up like the Nassim and said, whatever you're missing, Rabbi, in the BRS global campaign, I'll cut that check. Whatever you're missing, I'll make up that difference and get you to that goal. I would give you the biggest virtual hug, a huge yeshikoach. So why the Nassim criticized for this? What did they do wrong? Where did they go wrong? So says Rav Druk the following. When Hashem says we're doing an appeal, a campaign, it's not a time to start doing cheshbonos. Should I be at first? Should we make up the deficit? How much should we get? Right away you have to say, I want to be listed, I want to be counted among those who give. Even if the calculation was noble, and even if the calculation was accurate. But the very fact that you pause and hesitate to make a calculation is in itself a procrastination that reflects poorly. When Hashem is recruiting and soliciting, when Hashem is asking, appealing, you say, I'm in. You need zrizus when it comes to the honor of Hashem. And immediately to give everything you can. And that's why there's a disappointment and there is a criticism that they waited till the end to give. And you see this by Amaymar Chazal, the Mechilta in Parshish Bo. I don't want to scare anyone about Pesach and how close we are to it. Mitzvah bol yodcha al-tach It says matzos, that you have to safeguard the matzah. We know this, we pay a very hefty price for shmura matzah, matzah, which is guarded, guarded from the time of what? That's a big debate. What is the definition of shmartem? From when does it need to be guarded? Different chumras and different price points. But our rabbis say, don't read it ushmartem es matzos, read it ushmartem es mitzvos. Safeguard the mitzvos. From which Chazal understand, mitzvah baliyadcha al-tach mitzena. When you have the opportunity to do a mitzvah, don't turn it into chametz. Just like if you delay, the only difference, flour and water, 
The only difference between matzah and chametz are not the ingredients, flour and water. The only difference between matzah and chametz, in fact, are is time. The amount of time it takes. If you allow time to impact the flour and water, chametz. If you moved with alacrity and zeal, matzah. So similarly, when you're when you're presented with a mitzvah opportunity, don't turn that mitzvah into chametz. I don't understand. The mitzvah, don't turn it into, into, uh, into chametz. Chametz is meshubach. Chametz is, is greater. Because matzah is lachamoni. Matzah is the bread of the poor person. Chametz is the bread of the rich person. So isn't chametz what we strive for and crave? Chametz is the bread of the rich person who has time for the bread to rise and who is prepared for it to spoil because he'll just get more. But the matzah is for the poor person who both doesn't have time for it to rise and needs it to be something that never grows stale because he has to stretch it out to last as long as possible. So if chametz is better, then why do we say al-tach mitzena? Listen to this chiddush. Give you a vort for Nisan and Pesach. So write it down for Pesach already now. Listen to this. Again, I never thought of this. This is why I love Rav Druk's farum. I love these farum. We're trying to arrange a special opportunity for Rav Druk to come on our Parsha Shir and to introduce him to you to share some of these Divrei Torah live. So please, God, will be able to uh, to arrange that. So Rav Druk says, now we understand. Mitzvah, bali yadcha, al tachmitzana. But wait, chametz is better than matzah. Matzah is lachamoni. Matzah is the bread of the poor person. Chametz is the bread of the rich person. What do you mean, don't turn it into chametz? Shouldn't I want to turn it into chametz? What do you see from here? That even if you delay to do the mitzvah, means you could do the mitzvah better, still do the mitzvah right now. Yeah, chametz is better than matzah. Matzah, we only eat one week a year. The other 51 weeks, we're eating the chametz. Chametz is better. It's the bread of the poor person. It's the bread of the rich person. Yet, what do you see from here? Just like chametz is better, but don't wait and turn something into chametz. Even if the mitzvah would be better if you wait, don't wait to do the mitzvah better. Better to do it right now. Better to do it right now. And that was the mistake of the cheshbon of the, of the nesiyim. They shouldn't have made this cheshbon. Just the calculation will come in and will finish and will complete the deficit. And whatever is missing will make up for it. And won't that be amazing? Just that cheshbon, just that cheshbon was their mistake. Why the letter Yud? And why is the punishment of the Nesim? Remember that these stones, the Avnei Shom and Avnei Milum, that they donated, they come at the end, punishing the Nesim. But the other punishment is that the Nesim is spelled Chaser, it's missing the letter Yud. Why is it spelled missing the letter Yud? How is that a punishment? So listen to what Rav Druk says. It's an You could read the word Nesim without the Yud. It's just that Yud is the holiest level. Yud is a, a Yid. Yud is a Jew. Yud is, contributes to the name of Hashem. So you could read the word without the Yud, even though the Yud there would make it better, and that's exactly their mistake. You could do it without it, even though having it there would make it better. Gewaldig, no? What a geschmack pshat in this whole story about why the Nesim are criticized, why the Avnei Shom, Avnei Miluim are listed at the end, why the punishment is removing the Yud, and why Atach Mitzena is a bad thing, even though Chametz is better than Matzah, all wrapped into one, namely, don't procrastinate and wait. Because even though you could do it better later, the very fact that you waited and delayed makes it worse, even if it looks better. Always do it immediately. I love it. What a gishmak pshat. And then he has another one. Again, the question why it's at the end. And he quotes a second interpretation of the Orachayim Ha Kadosh, who says, 
Where do these stones come from? These precious stones that were placed in the garments of the Quran. Where did they come from? They descended from heaven. They came from Hashem. They took no effort. So the Nasim didn't have to actually empty their bank account. They came from heaven. They came from Hashem. They took no effort, no toil, and they were no, took no sacrifice. So you see from Hashem that that which came without the sacrifice and effort, it goes at the end. It goes at the end. What you did with sacrifice and effort, what you did when you worked harder, is more precious and gets listed at the beginning. So even though objectively, even though objectively, these precious jewels are more valuable than the other materials and they should have been listed first, but because the mechanism of retrieval, because the way that we got them took no effort and took no sacrifice, they're listed at the end. That which we do without sacrifice and effort is not nearly as valuable. It's not nearly as valuable that which takes work. I always say with my kids, when they tell me about their grade in school, Baruch Hashem, my kids get good grades, they have a smart mother, but I always ask them, did you try your hardest? Does it represent your best effort? I don't care about the grade. So two kids will report on their midterm simultaneously, and one got a 92, and the other got an 85. But if the one who got the 85 says, yes, I worked tirelessly, I studied harder than I ever did, and the one who got the 92 said, you know what, honestly, I winged it, I didn't really put in my best effort, then I'll give better feedback I will be more supportive in responding to the one with the lower grade, but it took more effort. Because even though objectively the 92 is higher than the 85, but the one who had to work harder, the one who put more of themselves into it, that's of greater value. That's a greater value, and they deserve the greater reward. He quotes Rav Druk to Chavetz Chaim. The great Chavetz Chaim said this, of course, on Anu Amelam Hema Amelam. When a person makes a siyam, we say, we toil and they toil. Anu Amelam Amkab Mishar Vehem Amelam Ve'enam Amkab Mishar. So, Asks everybody, What do you mean we get reward and they and they don't get reward? Our reward is in the world to come. What are you comparing rewards for? How can you begin to compare? So the Chavetz Chaim explains. See, in this world, the reward is only for the result, but in our estimation, the reward is for the effort. They give the, you know example. If you give someone a final on math and you had to solve math equations and you couldn't solve them, you get a bad grade. I don't care if you spend six hours on the math equations, if in the end of the day you couldn't solve them, there is no reward, you fail the test. But if you're struggling with a difficult tosfos, you're trying to break your teeth on a difficult, on a difficult rebchaim, and you struggle and toil for six hours, and you know what, in the end, you don't understand it. In the end, you still don't have, uh, you don't have a grasp on the tosfos. Do you get reward? Yes, because for us, the reward is the effort, the toil, the sacrifice. It's, of course, the result. We care about the result. Not to suggest that we care about the result. We care about the result. But we care about the result. We care also about the effort that went in. And since the Avnei Shalom and Avnei Miluim didn't take nearly the same effort, that's why they're listed at the end. I want to share with you another insight, Avnei Shalom Avnei Miluim, a third insight. This comes from the Sefer Ol Moshe. And the Sefer Ol Moshe says, Shamati mi Moreinu, Hagon Reb Shmuel Birnbaum, Zatzal. Madu'a Torah koro la'avonam elu Avnei Miluim. Avnei Shalom are Shalom stones. Shoham stones. I know a family Shoham. Precious, like jewels. Name jewel. Jewel Shoham. So Avne Shoham. Shoham are precious stones. What are Avne Miluim? Avne Miluim. What does the word Miluim mean? Listen to this. If you haven't listened to anything until now, this is the best shot today. Listen to this insight. They're all great, but listen to this. Avne Miluim. Miluim, Limalot, Malay, means to fill. They fill a void. On the breastplate, there were empty slots, and these stones filled the slot. So what do we call the stone? Not a ruby and not a diamond, and not a, I just listed all the names of gems that I know. 
We don't call them by their name, even though that would really reflect their identity and their value. They're Avne Miluim. What are they? Oh, the stones that you put in the spot to fill the spot. What kind of a name is that, he wonders. Is that their only value? All you care about these stones, their only value is that they fill the gaping hole. That's all you care about? What about the inherent or intrinsic value? It should have said stones for the ephod and the choshen. What do you mean avne miluim? We're denigrating, we're diminishing these, uh, these stones by saying that their only value, their only worth is that they fill the slot. Listen to this insight. Listen to what the Torah is telling us. The Avne Miluim, these Avanim, these gems, they are, these are stones, are extraordinary. And they are inherently and intrinsically of inestimable value. But, Gedola Yosem Meha'erach Atzmi, Hu Lemalei Eschisaron Hazulas. You know what your biggest value is? Not who you are inherently or intrinsically. Your biggest value is what service you are to the other. How do you fill a role in someone else's life? What your value is to you, eh, that doesn't impress us. But your real value is, what do you fill, what role do you fill in someone else's life? That's the message of Avne Miluim. They're called Avne Miluim, not Avanim of their precious inherent value, because the greater value is not what they're worth inherently. The greater value is Miluim. How are you Malay? In what way do you fill the needs of others? Since their whole value, Rashi says, is to fill the opening. Greater than the intrinsic value is the value in the role that they play for the other, and that's why they're called Avne Miluim. So two insights into why the Avne Miluim, Avne Shom are, are listed at the end. Two Orachayim's and a Rav Druk, three insights, and the beautiful insight here of Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, why they're called Miluim, which really is in some ways demeaning to these precious stones that have an intrinsic value. Now we get to the famous Pasuk. Perachafei, Pasuk, Ches. Vyosuli Mikdash, Veshachanti, Besocham. Everybody knows the famous Pasuk of Parshash Truma. Vyosuli Mikdash, Veshachanti, Besocham. How is it possible? Nobody made a song out of these words yet. Somebody's got to make a song out of these words. V'yasuli mikdash v'shachanti b'socham. Hashem says, make for me a mikdash and dwell where? In them. And everybody knows the nefesh ha'chayim. Everybody knows the nefesh ha'chayim of Velazhin, the great student of the Vilna Gon who tells us about the grammatical shift. V'yasuli mikdash in the singular. V'shachanti b'socham in the plural. Says the nefesh ha'chayim. The answer is that Hashem was not telling us just to make a building of bricks and stone, of, of mortar and that he would dwell there. Ultimately, where does he really dwell? Not in the physical architecture alone, but he dwells metaphysically inside each and every one of us. In fact, the Medrash Tanchum and Parshas Pekude tells us that the Mishkan corresponds to the creation of man because man is a world in miniature. So the Mishkan corresponds with Bracious, the creation of man, because each person is a world in miniature. And the Medrash goes on to say the menorah is the eye, and the Shulchan is the mouth, and the Mizbeach HaKitoris is the nose, and it goes on and on and on. Each one of us is that Mikdash in miniature. And we all know that's the song of the 16th century, Mekubal, Rebbe Askari, Belvavi Mishkan Evne, Lahadar Kvodo. 
We uh, all know this is a magnificent song, Bilvavi, that was put as a song. Bilvavi Mishkan Evna Lahadar Kvodo. In my heart, I'll make a Mishkan, an honor, and in a sanctuary, I'll place an altar, and to serve Hashem, we are. And, and this beautiful Nefesh Achayim, which we all know, takes on particular meaning, I think, this year, even more than normal. Why? Because this year, Vyasuli Mikdash, Vyasuli Mikdash in the singular, we have one shul. But there are many people who couldn't and still can't go to that shul. So they shouldn't be disheartened. If a person can't daven in shul, if a person can't come to any classes that are in person, if a person can't yet in t- attend live, they shouldn't become disheartened. They shouldn't become despondent because they have to realize that even though asuli mikdash in the singular, there's the shul, but v'shachati b'socham. Even when we are denied the mikdash, we still have the b'socham. There is the mikdash in our homes. There's the mikdash in our lives. There's the mikdash in ourselves. We still have that within ourselves. The Shem Yishmuel, the Sochot Shavar Rebbe, Parshish Chuma writes the following. He says, the Helega Sochot Shavar. He says, We know that we have the Mishkan, the Mishkan we have, and it takes us through our journey in the desert and when we begin to enter the land. And then we transition from the Mishkan to the Mikdash. We, we then, the Mishkan is disassembled and we move into when Shlomo Melech builds the Mikdash. Shamati says the Shem Yishmuel, I heard from my father, the Mishkan Nikra Hashem Hashras Hashchina, U Mikdash Hashem HaKedusha, Vaprisha Meolam Hazeh. The edifice each has a different name. Now the edifice serves the same purpose. Both were to bring karbonos. Both were to bring sacrifices. So if the similar avodah is done there, and the same people serve there, why are they given different names? Either, even once we settle in the land, Shlomo should have built a permanent Mishkan, or even while we traveled through the desert, we should have assembled and disassembled a transportable Mikdash. Why do we change from a Mishkan to a Mikdash? So it says the Helig Hashem that a Mishkan is called a Mikdash, a Mishkan because of Hashras Hashchina. What we're supposed to feel when you go into the Mishkan is the divine dwelling, the intensity of Hashem being there. Rabbi Lord Sachs, Zechron Levracha, explained that the, na- the nature, nature of the word Shechina is Shachin, a neighbor. It's Hashem not as distant and abstract, not the Hashem of far away and mighty and powerful, but it's the Hashem who's my neighbor, who's accessible, who I can talk to and confide in and lean on. It's the Hashem who's always there. So the Mishkan projected what this slave nation needed coming out of Egypt is to know that no matter how challenging or difficult things got, Hashra, Hashchina. If you needed a neighbor to lean on long before progressive, is that the one who's the neighbor? Like a good neighbor? No. I forget who it is. Long before, like a good neighbor, Hashem was there. If you needed a good neighbor, a good shachin, then you turned to the shechina, hashras hashchina in the mishkan. The mikdash, however, connotes something different. The mikdash is when you are living out there in the mundane, profane, base world of materialism, and you strive contact with holiness, come to the mikdash. Because the mikdash is all about kedusha. It's about holiness. It's about prisha. We're learning in Mesilas Hashem now. We're up to the parak, the midah of prishas. The midah of how we can transcend the physical, how we can live with some sense of abstinence, me'olam hazeh, from this world. So here's the thing, but why the change? So now is where he says, Mikdash ikri mishkan, u mishkan ikri mikdash, she'ein zeh below zeh. It's true that the name changed, but both have both components. The mishkan was also a mikdash, and the mikdash is also a mishkan. And one can use the names interchangeably because I think both edifices had both qualities, and therefore we looked to get both from both. 
Sometimes you needed to a neighbor, even with the mikdash, and you treated the mikdash as a mishkan. Sometimes you needed contact with holiness, and therefore you treated the mishkan as a mikdash. Each one is called the other because both contain both components, and, and we, in our shul, the goal of a shul, the goal of a community, is to strive to provide both as well, to strive to provide a place which is a contact, a portal to holiness, and a place to, to provide a contact with Hashem as the neighbor, when you want to feel a good, reliable neighbor, dependable neighbor, to feel connected to Hashem, that you can go there as well. Perachafei Pasuk Yud Alf. Now we start to get into the Kalim of the Mikdash. Perachafei Pasuk Yud Alf. The first is the Aron. Viasu Aron Atzei Shitim. You make the Aron out of acacia wood. And if you go back to listen to the previous Parsha Shiram, we've gone in depth into each of these. Really beautiful. The dimensions and the materials and the names. Magnificent clay yuckers on this Parshios. I encourage you, if that interests you, to go back and look. So the Aron is made out of Atzei Shitim. And why, by the way, the Aron is the one clay that is listed in the singular. All the other kalim are described in the plural. This kli is listed in the singular. And the dimensions are only partial, they're fractions rather than whole numbers. Why? All these are lessons, all these are deep and profound ideas. First of all, they are fractions, integers, not whole numbers. Why? To tell us that every Jew, when it comes to Torah, you're never whole, you're never complete, you're never done. You finish Shas, at the Siyam, you start the next Masechta. You're never done. You're never done learning. We're never done growing. And therefore, it's a fraction because each of us is a fraction. When it comes to Torah, you can never put a check and say, I'm done, I'm complete, it's over. So the Aron, which held the Luchos, the Aron, which held the original Sefer Torah, the Aron, which represented Torah, is in a fraction, not a whole number, because each of us is a fraction, not a whole number. It's in the singular because it depends on the entire community. When it comes to Torah, it is the entire, it is the entire community. So this Aron... Is covered, is layered. You cover it with pure gold from within and from without, and there's a gold crown that surrounds it. Again, there's some beautiful kliyakers about the crown that went around the Aron, the crown around the molding, the golden molding, the golden crown around the Shulchan, the, the beautiful um, symbolism of each of these things. So back to the Eish Talmud, back to Rav Druk. And Rav Druk says the following on this notion of the Aron being layered with gold outside and inside. Says Rav Druk the following. I skipped the Rav Druk. Okay, I'll go back and tell you this Rav Druk. If the goal is if the goal is for God to dwell in and through each and every one of us, then why is it connected to the first part of the Pasuk? It should be two separate independent ideas. One is build me a home, Give me a dir b'tachton, and one is build me a dwelling place. Make me a mikdash. Separate and par- parallel and independent from it, God should say, I want to dwell in it. Why is it connected, and why is it in this order? And says Rav Druk, First, everyone has to be united by a sense of one common mikdash. There is one capital spiritually of the Jewish people. And when it unites us, then the holiness can flow down from it into and through us to be that sense of vishachanti v'socham. First, we have to be connected to mikdash and then vishachanti v'socham. Just like Asher b'charbanu mikola amim v'nasalanu asatora. First, in the Birchas Torah, first he made us a nation, then he gave us the Torah. First, we have to be united, and then we can pursue our mission. First, we have to be connected through Yasul and Mikdash, and then we can be that 
mission charge driven people of Veshachanti Bisocham. Okay, back to the Yaron. So the Yaron of Vitipiso of Zahar Tahor, it is layered with gold, Mibaisumichutz, on the inside and outside you have to layer it. Says the Gemara Yuma Dafayan Bez, what do you learn from here? Why in the world is the gold layered on the inside? If I were running this campaign, I'd say save some money. We were interrupted. We were in the middle of a capital campaign for Ashul to expand. Baruch Hashem, we were bursting at the seams when Corona so rudely interrupted. So if we were looking at our budget and tightening our belts and figuring out where we can save and where we can shrink our budget, our expenses, I'd say, just have the gold on the outside. That's the part that people see. The inside, nobody sees. You don't need the gold on the inside. You only need the gold on the outside. So say the rabbis, what do you learn from here? Amar Rava, Mikan, L'Talmud Chacham, Shein Tocho Kibaro, Eino Talmud Chacham. A righteous person whose outside and inside don't match. If you have gold, if you're flashing ostentatious on the outside, and yet you're poor and simple on the inside, then you're duplicitous, you're hypocritical, you're a fraud. To be a Talmud Chacham, your outside and your inside have to match. If you want to glow on the outside, you better be glowing on the inside. We see similarly in the Gemara When the great uh, dispute between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Gamliel used to sit on the outside of the base Medrash, and he used to only allow those inside, only those who are consistent inside and out, only those whose insides and outsides match, are invited or welcome into the Mikdash. You have to be Tocho Kiboro. So if I ask you what matters more, your inside or your outside? Not so simple. One might say, says Rav Druk, that your outside matters more. Why does your outside matter more? Because let's say in your heart, we hear this from people all the time, I have a very generous heart. In my heart, I'm a really good person. Yeah, that's nice for your heart, but in your actions and your deed and the way we know you, you're a cheap, nasty, low-life, oisvarv jerk. So I could really care less that in your heart and in your mind, you're the nicest person you ever met. I don't really care that in your heart, you're the most generous person anyone could ever dream of. I can only measure you by what I know of you, which is your chitzonus, which is your actions. So you might have said the outside, the external, the manifestation of who we are matters most because that's who we really are. If we want people to think of us positively, if we want to earn a good reputation, it's not based on who we are inside, it's based on how we behave outside. But to be a righteous person, it's not enough to only do the right things on the outside either. You can't for show shuckle like crazy when you're in shul and then be ruthless and a low life and gossip when you're outside. Come on, hagas person has to be matching. What do we say in our davening in the morning? Sometimes it's easy to be a Yerushalayim externally. You'll get the accolades and you'll get the praise and you'll get your acknowledgement. But to be a Yerushalayim internally when no one's watching, to be matching our insides to our outsides. And we learn this from the Aaron, which was layered with gold inside and out. Says Rav Druk, you can add, The Aron sat on its base. It didn't have legs. The Aron didn't have a stand. It didn't have legs. Because if it has legs, if it has a stand, protrusions, then it looks like it's being elevated 
who also Rosham Yoser Gadol, it's giving an impression like it's bigger and more than it is, and that's not consistent, that's not humble. And the Aron is the model of Torah, and the model of Torah is our insides and our outsides matching. It's the model of humility. It's being the same. And then he quotes his father, the Drash Mordechai, of Mordechai Druch. Why do we say that the inside have to match the outside? Why don't we say the outside have to match the inside? Because if the Tamachacham's inside is like the outside, the reason that we aspire that the inside should match the outside um, is because. We can't even, the outside should match the inside, rather, is because there are people so great we can't even begin to imagine inside. Gedola Yisrael, Nashem Tzidkanios, the greatest people we have, we can't begin to scratch the surface of what's going on inside. So we say, Halavai, if their outside match their inside, pssst, what we would learn and see of them would be absolutely mind-boggling, would be incredible, would be incredible. Okay, moving right along. Perach Pesach Tezvav, still sticking with the Aron. The Aron had a very unusual feature. The Aaron had holes on the side, and there were poles, there were staves that were put through the holes in order to transport the Aaron. The Aaron wasn't unique or alone, it wasn't singular in this sense. The other Kalim also needed to be transported and had a similar mechanism of transport poles that would sit on the shoulders of those who transported them. But the difference of the Aaron, the Aaron's an outlier in the poles in the Aaron have to go in and they have to remain. They go in and they remain and they stay there. Why do they have to stay there? Rashi says forever, forever, forever and wherever. You can't take them out. Why not? Once you arrive at the destination and once they lower the Aaron and put it down, so take the poles out. How is it different and why is it different than the other Kalim? If the other Kalim, you could remove the poles once you've arrived, why must the poles of the Aron be perpetually present? Rav Shalom has a magnificent insight, so powerful for us today. Again, during this pandemic time, much like the Vyasuli Mikdash, maybe there's one shul and I can't get there, but Vishachanti B'Sacham, know wherever you are, Hashem is still with you. So the Aron contains the Luchos Abris, the Torah and its messages, the Torah and its directives, the Torah and its insight. And Rav suggests that the presence of the poles indicates the portability of Torah always. Torah does never settles in one place. Torah is not only relevant ever in one time. Torah is not relevant to one geographical location. Torah is portable. It's viable. It's relevant wherever and whenever. So the poles remain in the Aron to tell us that the Torah never settles down. The Torah is constantly ready to inform and inspire our lives wherever and whenever. It's not that the Aaron, when it arrives in the Mishkan or in the Mikdash, take the poles out, now you're done, now it's set. The Torah is ready to go with us wherever we go. It travels with us wherever we travel. The Torah is our faithful companion. The Torah is our guide. It's our instruction manual. It's our blueprint. It's so powerful. Now we don't have a Beis HaMikdash and we don't have a Mishkan. And the badim of the Torah are symbolic of these kalim, that they come with us wherever we go. And again, we don't have the Mishkan, we don't have the Beis HaMikdash, but the Torah is as relevant, as important for us today as it's ever been. We can't necessarily go to shul. Some of you, some of those with us right now, still can't go to shul, can't look at the Aron, can't listen to the Torah being read, but know that the Torah never removed its poles. The Torah is with you in your home. The Torah is with us wherever and whenever we are. It continues to inform and it continues to inspire our lives. It continues to inform and continues to inspire our lives. Now, Rav Druk has another comment. It says Rav Druk 
Why can't you remove them? He says, I want to tell you an amazing idea. Aaron represents Torah. What is the role of these poles? The roles of the poles is to support the Aaron. It lifts the Aaron. So, the Torah is teaching us a very important lesson. Just like the poles are a permanent fixture and a permanent part of the Aaron and never removed, the one who supports Torah is a permanent part and permanent fixture of the Torah that's being learned. When you donate to a shul, to a yeshiva, when you enter Yisachar Zvulun with a Tamar Chacham, when you give, whether it's to our global campaign or you give to any Torah institution, you are inseparable. Just like the poles are not removed to that which it's being supported, supporting it, so too those who support Torah are never separate or apart, are never removed from that whom they're supporting. Even when the Aaron is still, but the poles are still there to remember the support. Chavetz Chaim says the following. We sing when we put the Torah away. Eitz Chaim, I'm not going to torture you by singing it, but we sing Eitz Chaim, Lamachazikim Ba. Says the Chavetz Chaim, why does it say Lamachazikim Ba? It should say Lamachazikim Osa. Eitz Chaim, it's a living tree. It should say Lamachazikim Osa to those who are supporting it, but it doesn't say that. It says Lamachazikim Ba, not Osa. The truth is, Torah doesn't need our support. Nobody can so arrogantly and presumptuously say, I support Torah. You support Torah? Torah doesn't need your help. Yes, Torah needs your financial contributions. But make no mistake, when you give to Torah, the Torah is supporting you. The Torah is supporting you, you're not supporting Torah. And that's why it's, 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 it's an Eitz Chaim Lamachazikim Ba, not in All those who support Torah causes need to know that they're not in fact supporting Torah. Support Torah is supporting them. The Gemara says in Sota Daf Lamed Hey Ha'aron es nos of. The Aaron is carrying those who carry it. The Aaron is carrying those who carry it, and that's why the poles remain in place to remind us that when we support Torah, we think we're supporting Torah. But through the act of supporting Torah, in fact, the Torah is supporting us. So why were the poles never removed from the Aron, even when it got to the location? According to Rafersha, beautiful insight, Torah is transportable. It's relevant. It's timeless. It comes with us as our companion wherever we go, or even when we are quarantined at home, the Torah is still there. It has the poles. It travels with us wherever we go. And the second insight of Rav Druk, that the poles are there to remember. We think we're supporting Torah. Torah is supporting us. The Torah is what is supporting us. Ha'aron nose es nos of. ba, not osa. Thank you for learning with me again on Tuesday morning. I want to invite you to learn with me tomorrow morning. First at 8.15 when we do 15 minutes of Mesilas Yisharim. And then living with Amuna at 8.45. If you want to be notified when we go live for all the learning opportunities, simply subscribe on YouTube. Press subscribe on YouTube and you'll be notified when we go live and when you can learn. join us to learn. If you've not yet contributed to the BRS Global Campaign and you enjoy our Parsha Shir and you've benefited from it and from all the Divrei Torah we shared this morning about the importance of giving and expressing gratitude and supporting Torah, which will support you, 
then visit brsonline.org global, brsonline.org global. We're going to publish a list of all those who joined our global community and gave. Add your name to that list now. I thank you in advance, and I invite you to continue to learn together. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.